you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. And welcome to another fun-filled adventure of heresy. Dun, dun, dun. We're going to have fun today because we're going to do a two-for-deal, kind of compare, combining, comparing, combining the last two things we've talked about with Bible history and church history because we're going to put them both together because what we are doing this week is coming together so that I get to tell you that if you start walking with Jesus, don't get off the path. You know, that might be a good idea to stay put where he has, has you and, you know, continue to walk along. Now, why do I say that? Who in tarnation have you found to torture us with this week? And the answer is the Nicolaitans. Huh? Well, uh, what's a Nicolaitan? Well, see, I'm so glad you asked these lovely questions because I have, in theory, some lovely answers. So for starters, the Nicolaitans are a group that descend from Nicholas, not Santa Nicholas, um, the deacon Nicholas from Acts chapter 6. Now, they're a fun group because we actually don't have any direct writings from them. We only have their definitions by their opponents, and that is, well, to say that's a dangerous place to be is is putting it nicely. I mean, let's just say you get into a fight and, you know, the fight ends. And 40 years later, the other guy tells the story of the fight. And you never know what he says. You never get to refute it. You never get to listen to it. Do you trust what happened? Do you trust what he wrote down? Because I'll bet you you don't. And you probably shouldn't. But if we get enough of a consistent witness going back into history, and if we get enough of a consistent testimony from people, then we can kind of settle along as to what the group was about and what they believed. And that's what we're going to do with the Nicolaitans. We're going to trust our church history project (coughs) and believe that what they've got is down. So we have writings from Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Epiphanius, which if you're looking for a name for your kids, there's not going to be a whole lot of Epiphaniuses running around kindergarten, I'm just telling you. Uh, Theodoret, they all refuted the Nicolaitans. Now, it should be noted, and we are going to note it, that both Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius dispute that Nicholas himself was the founder. But since we don't have anything else consistent or anything else earlier than them that refutes the early assertions that it was founded by Nicholas, then, well, we're just going to go ahead and say that Nicholas is the founder because we had just have too much church history to say so and to argue against it. Now, why do I call the Nicolaitans heretics, you may ask? And you should ask. That's, that's, a, that's a good question to ask. I want to know your justification for this. Well, my first justification is Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. Yet, you, yet this you do have, <coughs> excuse me, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Revelation chapter 2, verse 15. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
that's not good. Verse 16 calls on the uh, church at Pergamum to repent of this, lest Jesus return and make war against them. Now, here is a simple rule from both church history and biblical theology that we want to follow. If Jesus calls you a heretic, you are a heretic. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do not get your coronavirus stimulus check. You are a heretic. Why? Because Jesus said you're a heretic, and we go with God in flesh and what he declares. So we lean on that. Now, that in and of itself should be enough. But if it isn't, we'll look at church history. The aforementioned Irenaeus, writing somewhere between 175 and 185 in his book Against Heresies. This can be found in Book 1. The Nicolaitines are the followers of that Nicholas who was the one of the first seven ordained to the diaconate by the apostles. That's Acts chapter 6. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is very plainly pointed out in the Apocalypse of John. We just read that. That's Revelation chapter 2. They basically were antinomian hedonists. Now, uh, Irenaeus isn't the only guy who says this. Hippolytus, writing somewhere between 180 and 230. Now, look, I would love to nail that down further for you. We just can't. So as we deal with ancient church history and ancient history in general, short of a handful of marker moments in history, you got to get a little comfortable with some uh, fuzziness on dates. So somewhere at the turn of the 2nd and 3rd century, we have Hippolytus. Refutation of all heresies, book 7. There are, however, among the Gnostics, diversities of opinion. But we have decided that it would not be worthwhile to enumerate the silly doctrines of these heretics, inasmuch as they are too numerous and devoid of reason and full of blasphemy. Now, even those of the heretics who are of a more serious turn in regard of the divinity, and have derived their systems of speculation from the Greeks, must stand convicted of these charges. But Nicholas has been a cause of widespread combination of these wicked men. He, as one of the seven that were chosen for the diaconate, was appointed by the apostles. But Nicholas departed from correct doctrine and was in the habit of inculcating indifferency of both life and food. That's a really fine way of saying that he was an antinomian hedonist. And when the disciples of Nicholas continued to offer insult to the Holy Spirit, John reproved them in the Apocalypse as fornicators and eaters of things offered unto idols. Ouch. We're just going to go with ouch. Now, you're probably wondering, what was so evil? I mean, like, I get when you say a hedonist, and I sort of get antinomian. That's someone who's against law of any kind. But what made these guys so particularly bad? Well, Epiphanus, yes, again, Epiphanus, writing in the uh, 4th century in Panarion, I'm guessing I'm saying that correctly. If not, uh, any ancient Greek scholars are more than welcome to send me a line at info at practicaltheologyministries.com and correct me on my pronunciation of Panarion, book one. He kind of gives us a, a bit more of a rundown, and I'm telling you, as wonky, funky church history stories go, this is up there. Though he had a beautiful wife, he had refrained from intercourse with her, 
as though in emulation of those whom he saw as devoting themselves to God. He persevered for a while, but could not bear to control his incontinence till the end. Instead, desiring to return like a dog to its vomit, he kept looking for poor excuses and inventing them in defense of his own intemperate passion. All right, so, so catch this. He was married to a beautiful woman, but thought it more righteous if he did not have sex with her. But because she was beautiful and because, well, he was a bit of a horn dog, he couldn't do it. Then failing of his purpose, he simply began having sex with his wife. Excuse me. But because he was ashamed of his defeat and suspected that he had been found out, he ventured to say, unless one copulates every day, he has no part in eternal life. For he had shifted from one pretense to another, Seeing that his wife was unusually beautiful, and yet bore herself with modesty, he envied her. So so catch that. She was hot, but she didn't flaunt it. She was beautiful, but she was not adorned with beauty, but in Christ. And supposing that everyone was was as lascivious as he, he began by constantly being offensive to his wife and making certain slanderous charges against her in speeches, and at length he degraded himself not only to normal sexual activity, but to a blasphemous opinion, the harm of perverse teaching and deceit of the covert introduction of wickedness. In a nutshell, church history kind of gives us a rundown that since he couldn't control himself when he was around her, and he assumed that her beauty would cause this reaction in everyone, he modified his theology so that not only was it okay for him to break his supposed vow of chastity with his wife, but it was okay for everyone to break vow of chastity with his wife. And yes, I'm phrasing that that way intentionally. He sort of began passing her around, as it were, as a as a means of quote unquote godliness. This is warped. This is one of the dangers that we have in not following Christ Christ's theology and apostolic teaching, but following our own ideas. This is why we started out with saying, "What if you start walking with Jesus, don't get off the path." How do I know what the path is? It is the path laid down by Christ, followed by his apostles, explained in their writings, which we call the New Testament. We have it written. We must follow. Now, remember our definitions. We have two types of heretics. We have the material and the formal. Now, the material heretic, and we're not using the Roman Catholic designations, we're using a more loose evangelical interpretation here. The material heretic is one who is living and or teaching a false doctrine. So, you know, whatever you may come up with, like it's, it's sinful to sleep on Tuesdays. And so the material heretic, when confronted with this argument, you know, you show them, hey, dude, there, there's nothing in Scripture that says we can't sleep. And as a matter of fact, we need sleep or we start dreaming and thinking really weird things. And Tuesdays aren't any different than any other day. So you tell them that and they go, oh, I'm so thankful. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I am so sorry I was teaching people to not sleep on Tuesdays. I will never do that again. See, that was a material heretic. They didn't know any better. Once corrected, they turn from the heresy and trust in Christ. The formal heretic is one who knows better, has understood the right doctrines, 
but has rejected them and continues to live and teach in ways that are contrary to them. That's the formal. So someone like Cain. We knew Cain knew the right doctrine. Why? Because Abel, his brother, is offering the correct sacrifice. Cain knows better. The Gnostics are twisting Christian writing and borrowing from Christian theology. They know the truth. They're rejecting it. The Nicolaitans following after Nicholas, a deacon, not only a deacon, if you read Acts, he is a proselyte, meaning he is a Gentile convert to Judaism. So he was in the process of converting to Judaism when he was converted to Christ, meaning he would have been well-versed and grounded in the law of Moses. He would have been well-versed and grounded in the history of Israel and would have understood the call of the prophets. He would have had all that background. He would have then added New Testament apostolic teaching since he's in and around Jerusalem, where James, Judas, um, not Judas, Jude, which technically it is Judas, but James and Jude, half-brothers of Jesus, Peter, all of the early church, John and even Paul himself, were ministering and teaching at some point or another. So he knows. He's been taught. He has rejected because he has a warped understanding of human sexuality. And because of that warped understanding, he ends up warping his doctrine to fit his understanding and his hope. So in order to, order to soothe his conscience, he does not flee to Christ to have his sins forgiven. He instead flees to his own understanding and his own comfort and modifies Christian doctrine. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because we have that laid out for us in Scripture. So let's let's start with the easy one. You know, when your theology tells you that it's okay for other people to sleep with your wife, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. This is easy. This is basic. Nicholas understood this as a proselyte, someone converting to Judaism. Kind of the starting point is, what are the commandments, you know, not sleeping with other people's wives and not having your wife sleep with other people is kind of just like laid out there. You, you can't get away from this. And you can't give me this, well, we're Christians. We're not under law. We're under grace, man. Jesus in Matthew 5 upholds this commandment as good and expands it. He doesn't denigrate it. He says, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. That's not good. He never says, no, that's awesome. Good job, guys. So go sleep with her because you've already thought about it. No, he condemns the action. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is an is to expand the definition of sin and move it from something external of you to something internal to you. It was to break the listeners so that they would cry out for a Savior who, by the way, was standing on the mountain speaking to them. And that's a whole other story for another day that we'll eventually get as a resource on our website. So the Sermon on the Mount is not a denigration of the law. It is an expansion and use of the law. Now, beyond that, just a biblical understanding of marriage, because the commandment doesn't come out of thin air. Rewind in biblical history to Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. Why is that so important? Because it predates the fall. Marriage and, act and, and a covenantal union is not a societal union. It is not a legal union. It is not a governmental union. It is a spiritual union. One man, one woman, joined in the presence and knowledge of God in a covenant for life. They are now one flesh. This is why 
Jesus expands on this in uh, Matthew 19. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Or if you've gone to a wedding in the last, you know, 30 years, you get a good King James reader up there. Let what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. We need more asundering in, 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 our, in our modern day theological talk, I think. So God has done this. How dare you attempt to separate it? Again, Jesus expanding on this based on what God has ordained. Now, again, notice, pre-fall is Genesis 2. Marriage is not a result of sin. It is something that predates sin. Divorce, brokenness, idolatry, adultery are products of sin, not marriage itself. Further proof of this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul's laying out, and he's going to lay out that it would be good if people were like him, able to devote themselves totally to the service of God. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Notice that, his own wife, her own husband, going back to a one flesh union, one man, one woman. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, Let's understand this. Paul is very politely saying, you must fulfill your duty. You must sleep with your spouse. You must have intercourse with them. It is part of the one flesh union, the mingling of souls as there is a mingling of bodies. Now, if you are incapable of that, that is one thing. But if you are unwilling, that is something entirely different. Go back to Nicholas's story. He thinks it's more holy to abstain. Therefore, he abstains from everyone, including his wife. And then when he thinks he is no longer able to stay away, because she is so beautiful, he breaks his commitment. He sins against himself and God by sleeping with his wife. No, he didn't. He sinned against God by failing to sleep with his wife, by failing to enjoy and partake of the good thing that God has given in marriage, in that one flesh union. This is backwards. Verse 4 in 1 Corinthians 7. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now notice this. Likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Meaning in marriage, you don't belong to you. So this whole my body, my choice? No. It's, it's not. You have a duty to your spouse to care, honor, and love them. That is both a spiritual and a physical aspect of marriage. So Paul finishes up the section. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. As you burn in lust for one another, your brain cooks a little bit. I'm, I'm seriously convinced of this. And I think Paul was too. So he tells you, no, this is what God has ordained marriage for. This is one of the blessings of it. Engage in it and stop walking away. Now, if you're clever and you know anything about history, you might sit there and say, well, maybe Nicholas didn't know this teaching. I mean, Paul's writing in a letter to the Corinthians in, in the, you know, the early 50s A.D. Nicholas is running around in the mid-30s and 40s around Jerusalem. Maybe he just never knew. And I would go, you're possibly right. But he's still running around Jerusalem where James is, where Jude is, where Peter and John are. One of the churches that refutes his idea is Ephesus. This is important because Ephesus planted by Paul, ministered in by Paul, pastored later on by Timothy and also by John. Part of the reason I think why the Ephesians are commended in Revelation 2 is because that they understood 
understood this was bad because they were taught it. Um, here's the other part. As this spread, the letter to the first Corinthians, the letter to the first Corinthians, the first, the letter of first Corinthians spread, the letter to the Corinthians spread. The teaching is not unusual. The grounding of marriage from Genesis is not unique to Paul. The explanation from the law of Moses is not unique to Paul or to me or to Christ. This is common understanding. So even if you can say, well, Nicholas didn't know about this particular aspect of marital union that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians. He still knew marriage was the one flesh union from Genesis 2. He still knew the command against adultery in Exodus 20. He still understood the call of righteousness of Micah 6. He understood all of this as a proselyte. And as his followers went out, they would have encountered apostolic teaching, and they themselves would have been refuted. The fact that they never change is what makes them actual heretics. Now, all of this has grounding in what I think is actually the biggest issue for the Nicolaitans, and that's the antinomianism. Because, again, we've made mention of this before. Matthew 5 I said Matthew 5, right? Yeah, Matthew. Yeah, Matthew 5. Matthew 5 lays out in the Sermon on the Mount an expansion of the law, meaning that the law is good. Jesus uses it for what it's intended for, uh, as Galatians 3 tells you, as a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. The law crushes you because it points out your sin and your iniquity, and it demands that you receive salvation, not from yourself, or not in yourself, but from a Savior. So to say that we are rejecting the law, which is a big deal because this is, this is modern heresy at work. Christians walking around going, well, I'm free in Jesus. I can just, I'll repent and that'll be okay. That's not godliness. That's not faith and works, James 2, working together. That's not being saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and then walking in the good works of God, Ephesians 10. That's saying that I'm good and I'm saved, but I'm not saved for anything. That, that's foreign. <coughs> that is an alien idea, excuse me, in Scripture. Ephesians 4, uh, Romans 12, I mentioned James 2, Ephesians 2.10. Litany of, litanies of places in Scripture. First Peter, as he lays out relationships and how you live, he's doing what? He's explaining how you function in godliness because you are now different. So you are aliens and strangers in this place, and so you live like it. Romans 12 lays out how you walk the walk of carrying your cross daily. Colossians 2, how you're being built up in Christ because you are now new. Um, all of these places in Scripture are doing the same thing. They're explaining that you were dead in your sin. Uh, Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3. But by faith, you are now alive in Christ, Romans 4, which means what? All of Christ, Romans 5, none of you. So what now should we do in light of that? Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Meganoita, literally, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? You are dead in Christ. This is our uh, baptismal formula as Baptist. Buried with him in death as we lay you down in the water. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into his death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the second half. We put you under and say, buried with him in death, and as we pick you out of the water, raised to walk in the newness of life. Baptism is a symbol of the new work of the Spirit in your life. You are dead to your old self and alive to a new life. 
For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, meaning it's now dead, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is, who has died is free from sin. So in other words, it's not my master if I have killed it. It's not my master if the one that it had enslaved is dead. And in Christ, I'm alive and I'm free which means I no longer have to serve it, which means I am capable of walking away and conquering my sin. Now, how do I know what sin is in my life? Well, welcome to the law. How do I know what my good works are that please God in Christ? And how do I live my good works? Welcome to the law. It defines what is wrong, but also defines in a negative light what is right. So in other words, while I know it's a sin to sleep with my neighbor's wife, I also know that it is righteousness when I love my own wife and uphold both my marriage and his. While I know so, I have a positive and a negative. So negatively, I know that it is sin to murder. But positively, I know that it is righteous to honor life and preserve and uphold it and do things that are a benefit to it. Excuse me. Therefore, I get both pictures. I get the definition of sin in my desires, but I also get the definition of good works moving forward. So, the Nicolaitans, antinomian hedonists who were wife-swapping in the first century, all because of one man failing to understand the totality of Scripture. As Ecclesiastes tells us, there is nothing new under the sun. And that's, that's kind of part of the fun of doing this series is we get to expose ourselves to the history of the church and where things have gone wrong, and even more so expose ourselves to how Scripture sets it right. And the lesson here is if we follow Scripture rightly, we will be protected and preserved from these things because we will have a standard by which we point at them and go, um, no, not going there, not even thinking about going there, and here's why, because we have now laid out a proper scriptural balance. So what have we learned today, children? We have learned that it doesn't matter how you start, it's how you finish. This is a good lesson for us. Nicholas started well. Nicholas finished poorly. Ground yourself in Scripture so that you too may finish well. We must be diligent to follow Christ in Scripture. Notice that. Not in our own understandings, but in Scripture. If you can't give me a Bible verse or an argument that includes a Bible verse, you're probably wrong. And then finally, we must always be wary of ourselves and our motivations. Don't trust you. You are not good. This is one of the lessons of life, one of the lessons of Scripture why we must carry our cross daily, why we must be renewed by the transforming of our minds, why we must follow the cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, why we must be grounded and built up in Christ and godliness, why we must long for the pure milk of the word. And if you're not paying attention, what am I laying out? Um, somewhere in Luke, Romans 12, Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11, 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 4, Colossians 2. These are all explanations from Scripture on how we live active lives serving Christ. This is what we do. And the benefit of it is you don't end up like a weird wife-sharing Nicolaitan from the first century who started well and spectacularly poorly fell down the mountain. We want to finish well, which means we want to live well because then we are serving and praising the God who saved us well. Now, 
If you want some more info on this, there'll be a blog posting on the Practical Theology Ministries website, practicaltheologyministries.com. You can find it under blog posts. It'll be a companion to this, so you can kind of get all the, the sources and the information and the scripture references from this without having to write them all down. There you'll also find links to past podcasts. We have a nice little player on the website so that you can listen to anything past there, especially our worship services, as we are trying to get those uploaded as we have them at Calvary Baptist in Rockford, Illinois, where you are welcome to worship with us every Sunday morning at 10.30 Central Time. Um, you can also sign up for our newsletter on the website, which I will go ahead and warn you, the April newsletter did not happen because COVID is all, and we are half, half of us are in lockdown that are contributing to it. So it just didn't happen with schedule. So May will be a special double issue. You'll get April and May, so you'll get two times the fun. You can sign up to have that delivered directly to your inbox on the website, or as well as find past issues of that newsletter. Fun stuff on church history, uh, walk Bible study this year on on the book of Colossians, uh, addiction resources, uh, complementarian women's issues, all, all sorts of fun stuff in that newsletter. You can also find us on Twitter there. You can follow us on Facebook. You can also link to the church's website, Calvary Baptist Rockford in uh, Rockford, Illinois, where, again, you're welcome to join us as they are the ones who kind of take care of us and give us the space and allow us the resources and opportunities to do all this fun stuff. So hope you've enjoyed it. Hope it was beneficial. If nothing else, read your Bible. It'll do you good. God bless.